Some of these videos, I probably don't even need to preach after we watch them. You know what I mean? They're so powerful. They're so good. Identity is what we're talking about today. And that video describes who we are in Christ so well. But we're going to look a little deeper, as we often do into Scripture this morning, into what the Bible says about us, you and me. We're continuing our series on the journey, and we've been following Moses around from birth, and now the Israelites as well, as they've been traveling out of Egypt. They're across the Red Sea, and now they're making their way southward down the west coast of the Sinai Peninsula toward the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. There's so many significant things that happened to Moses and now to the Hebrew people at this location, and today will be no exception, as they finally make it to the mountain. And for the first time since they left Egypt, God has them really become stationary while he establishes some important milestones for his people through Moses. So, so up to now, the situation for the Israelites has been a bit fluid. And I think it's worth noting that God now has them stop, make camp, and be still for a while as he, as he takes time to explain to his children exactly who they are. And, and I believe this point is really significant. God could have just continued to teach them as they moved on through the desert, but he didn't. He brought them to a special place, a sacred place, for about a year. And he, he reveals to them who they are and makes a covenant with them. Okay? God wants us to realize the significance of who we are in him today just as he did with the Israelites in Exodus. Not so that we can flaunt it arrogantly or not so that we can hide it from the world. He wants us to fully realize the weight of who we are in Christ so that we understand what's expected of us and we understand what we're capable of. And just like the Israelites, I think that sometimes we just need to stop and let that really sink in. You know, push, push all of the urgent in our life aside and find a quiet place and meditate on God and let him speak into you the truth about who you are. Because once we grasp the truth about who we are and begin to live to the fullest potential available to each of us, we become the most potent force for good in the world. The mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ has been entrusted to us, just as the Ark of the Covenant was entrusted to Israel. We can try and hide that in a tent, don't tell anyone about it, or we can carry that before us into battle, into the world, winning lost souls for Christ, bringing the good news of freedom and healing and salvation and eternal hope to the world around us. That's what the enemy of our souls wants to keep from happening. And so he's always working to keep us distracted from carrying out the will of the Father. And one of the, the chief methods that he uses to that end is to keep us from fully realizing our true identity in Christ. Likewise, I'll tell you that I think the church is struggling with its identity today. Cultures are different everywhere you go, of course, and I believe that it's good and necessary for the church to be culturally relevant in its community. When missionaries go to a foreign country, they take great strides to learn the local culture so they can minister in a way that is relevant to those local people. That's called contextualization of the gospel. And there are volumes of books written about it. 
At the same time, however, the church's identity is ultimately in Christ, rooted in the Word of God. But I think the church in some ways is suffering from a bit of an identity crisis today. Our value, our worth in Christ, the power that we possess as Christians, and our purpose as Christ followers should be defined by God's Word, not our current culture. But I'm afraid that sometimes we allow ourselves to succumb to those pressures of contemporary culture, media, political correctness, to the detriment of our witness. The state of the church today, in some ways, very much resembles that of the secular world. And I'm not talking about superficial things, of course. Okay, I love contemporary music, obviously. I love all kinds of facilities and even contemporary facilities. I love using media and the arts to convey our message. I'm talking about something deeper. Our identity as Christians and the church of Jesus Christ. We don't want to be like the man who looked in the mirror and then forgot what he looked like when he turned and walked away. Some of us, I'm afraid, have forgotten who we are and the power given us by the Holy Spirit. So many Christians today are beat up and, and worn down and stressed out and depressed and lonely. And yet too often I believe that we seek solutions to what ails us from sources other than the Spirit of God who dwells inside of us. 1 John 2, 15-17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Okay, let's jump back into our story with Moses then and the Israelites where we left off last week and let's talk about true identity. All right, let's read Exodus chapter 19 and we'll start on verse 1. Exodus 19:1 it says on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. And again, this was about a year. This, this lasted, okay? So Israel coming into Sinai and camping at the mountain is also the fulfillment of the sign of the Lord promised to Moses at the burning bush. That he would bring the people out of Egypt and they would serve God on this mountain. He was talking about Mount Sinai, which he promised Moses in chapter 3, verse 12. The statement on the third new moon in verse 1 puts their arrival at Sinai about seven weeks after the exodus. Okay? Which also coincides with Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, which celebrates the giving of the law, among other things. So all of this is very significant, both historically and prophetically. Okay, let's continue. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore, on you, bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant. Okay, pause there a minute. There's a requirement for the Israelites. If you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant. Sometimes... We errantly tend to dismiss these kind of statements today because it's the Old Testament. But we just read 1 John 2.17, which says, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
All right, so there's still requirement for us today to do the will of God, and more specifically, to keep the new covenant, which identifies us with Christ. Just as the Israelites had to keep the old covenant to maintain their identity with the Father. And it's worth noting here that God was calling Israel to be faithful to His covenant even before the covenant was revealed to them. It really should speak to us today because God requires our allegiance, our trust, our obedience, even when we can't see what's ahead of us, right? Even before His plan is fully revealed to us. And there's an expectation of faithfulness still on our part. Okay? Let's finish verse 5 and continue. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. From all the earth is my, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Okay? God makes three statements here about his people that we need to understand still apply today to us. Number one, we are his treasured possession. In verse 5 he says, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Before we dive into this first point, I just want to establish this morning a common understanding among us, okay? That we are a part of the true Israel today. You and I. Whether, whether you're Jewish or not. So that when you read some of these passages, we understand that a lot of this applies to us directly. Some of the, the prophecies specifically addressing Jerusalem and its people at the time have already been fulfilled. Obviously, those don't directly address us in 2013. But the future promises to His chosen people do apply to us. Not everyone believes that. Not all Christians believe that. But if we're to properly glean what we can from these Exodus passages, we have to establish this first. Our status as his chosen people today. Okay? There's national Israel, and then there's the true Israel. You and I, the church of Jesus Christ today, we're a part of the true Israel. There, there are certain members, obviously, of the nation of Israel who also belong to Jesus Christ, Messianic Jews. But not all of the Jewish nationals are part of the true Israel. Okay, Romans 9, 1 through 8, Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Okay, Paul is clearly identifies us belonging to the true spiritual Israel. And then in Romans 9, 24 through 26, Paul says, Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. That's us. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. 
Okay? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the nation of Israel is insignificant. The nation of Israel is very significant, both historically and prophetically. But just as there were Jews then and now who are not followers of God, who have no inheritance in him, there are non-Jewish Christians today, like us, who do have an inheritance and will receive the fulfillment of the promises that he made to the true Israel, his followers, his chosen people. He continually, throughout the Old Testament, brought punishment, consequence to the people for their actions, but he always left a remnant. He never completely wiped out Israel. It's the true Israel. He always left a remnant of those that would come back and serve him. We're a part of that, so there's no doubt, okay? Paul makes it clear scripturally that we as followers of Christ have been grafted into this family of God. We are his chosen people, members of the true spiritual Israel. And so when he makes promises and special claims, even in the Old Testament, about his chosen people, those apply to us today. Okay, This is part of the great mystery of the gospel that we talked about last week where Paul explains in Ephesians 3.6 this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay, So we don't have time to really do a thorough study of this today. But for more on that, if you want, you can look at Romans chapter 11, where Paul goes on to explain that we Gentiles have been grafted into the family of God, the true Israel. Okay, so for now, we'll get back to our original point, having established that as members of his chosen people, we must understand that we are his treasured possession. That sounds very sweet, doesn't it? And I suppose, I suppose it is. But it's much more than simply a nice thought that makes us sort of feel all warm and fuzzy. When the creator of the universe, the God who spoke worlds into existence, the, the giver of life itself. As Amos 5.8 says, he who made the Pallades and the Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkness the day into night, darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. When that person says to you, you are my treasured possession. Man, that's something worth paying attention to. You are his treasured possession of all that he's created, all, all of the majesty, all the beauty of all of the wonder and tapestry of creation and, and the glory of nature. Out of all of that, you are his treasured possession. We really sell ourselves so incredibly short sometimes because we don't always fully realize just exactly who we are. Too often, we allow ourselves to feel worthless, like they said on the video, to feel cheap, unimportant, you know, as if we don't really matter in the big scheme of things. But that's not what God says. He says, you are my treasured possession. And the point in realizing this and really allowing it to sink in isn't just so that we can feel good about ourselves. We need to understand who we are in Christ because once we come into full acceptance of our true identity in Him, everything changes. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14-18, Paul spells this out. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Belial means worthlessness. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple 
of the living God. And so here he's hearkening back now to, the, to God's word to those people in the Old Testament, which, which further makes the case that he was speaking to us today when he made these statements. And as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. You see, understanding who we really are, getting a firm grasp on the fact that God really does dwell among us today, His Holy Spirit within us, causes us to act differently, to, to view people and situations and the world as a whole differently. When I encounter people today, particularly when I meet new people, I'm always trying to play, uh, pay a close attention to the voice of the Holy Spirit within me because so often in the course of that interaction, I realize there's a greater purpose for that introduction than me simply meeting someone new. So frequently, God has something for me to say or something for me to do or he leads me to pray for someone or, or offer them something to, to encourage them or to strengthen them depending on whatever they're, you know, they're currently dealing with in their own life. And I'm increasingly becoming sensitive to that because I know that as one of God's chosen, He has me on this earth for much greater purposes than my own happiness and fulfillment. Thank God that's a part of it. I want to be happy. I want to be fulfilled. And that's part of it. But it's much bigger than that. And I know that because as I read about all of his promises and plans and purposes for his people, I now insert my name into all of those passages because I realize he's talking to me. That's a wonderful realization to have. And it comes, by the way, with a lot of responsibility. How many opportunities are we missing each day when we encounter others, but we're, we're so fixated on our own needs, our own desires, our own complications in life that we miss the bigger picture how God wants to use us in each situation and every encounter that we have daily listen Billy Smith he lives in our neighborhood and he and Kathy come you know we've been praying for him for several months now he's locked in a real battle physically in fact he's fighting for his life and it's an emotional battle as well there's tremendous physical need in his life right now and I'm sure he doesn't realize this but every time I call him to encourage him or to pray for him, he talks to me and he always asks me how I'm doing. You know, that doesn't happen very often. Pastors, generally people don't ask pastors how they're doing because they need you. And that's, uh, I'm thankful for that, that I can be a part of people's life in that, in that manner. It's part of my calling. Rarely do people say, how are you? <laughs> but Billy does that. He's, always, he's like concerned about my well-being. How I'm holding up in the midst of how he's doing. And he always inquires about my needs and he wants to know how he can help the church. I'm sure he doesn't realize it. But every time I get done talking with him and praying for him and encouraging him, I feel so encouraged. He makes me feel better about my life and what I'm doing. He ministers to me all the time. God uses Billy routinely to build me up. I told you about Justin last week at the motorcycle dealership. Same thing. It was a matter of simply paying attention to every moment as an opportunity to affect someone else's life for Christ. I call those God moments. 
and I have them often, and it's, it's born out of the knowledge and understanding of who I am. I am his treasured possession. I am the temple of the living God, and that means I have a job to do. I've asked Sandra Hammock, Sandra, would you come? To come this morning and share with you one of her God moments that she's had recently that she shared with me, and I want you to want you to hear about it. Thanks. Good morning. I have to I have to start by telling you that um, the video touched me this morning. I promise, Thomas, I won't cry. <laughs> um, as recently as this morning, I was hearing this voice that said, "Who are you?" to go and speak to a group at church and share a story. Who are you? You're nobody. And your story is so small. And, and I almost turned to Thomas and said, would you go without me? And then God's voice said, whoa, wait a minute. That wasn't my voice telling you not to go to church. That wasn't my voice telling you you're not significant. Please go. You have a story to share. And as insignificant as it might seem to you, Sandra, it's going to touch somebody. So here it goes. <laughs> a few weeks ago, you may remember, in the back of the church, there were some little bags of goodies. And I remember walking in the door and seeing those, and I thought, oh, this must be like children's church fun stuff, you know, for the kids. Well, lo and behold, it wasn't. And we were asked to take the bags, you may remember, to people that we see on the street, homeless people. And our family lives in Greenville, so I have a lot of opportunity to go to Haywood Road. If you've ever been on the Haywood Road exit, there are typically some people standing out there with a sign. And also Woodruff Road, where I go to work, there are typically people there as well. So I said, but I have lots of opportunities to do this. So I take a bag and put it in the front seat. Well, this was Sunday, and I'm thinking Monday, oh, I'm going to see somebody. I get to give them a bag, right? I get to do the, the cool thing of giving them a bag, and nobody was there Monday. I think it was Tuesday afternoon. On my way home, and I'm in the far right lane to make a turn, he's on the left-hand side of the road, of course. This is not going to be easy for me. As a matter of fact, I'm tired. I just want to go home. But there he stood with his sign. And to get back around to him, I had to make a U-turn, go all the way down to Haywood Mall, come back around. And I was trying to catch the light so that I could be stopped and there wouldn't be anybody. You know, why is this crazy woman stopping? Get out of the way, honk, honk, beep, beep, curse, curse. Uh, <laughs> so I went around three times before there was finally nobody behind me. And I stopped, honked the horn, put my window down, and I just held the bag up, you know, like this. And he came running over, a man probably my age. Um, interestingly enough, clean. And um, I had a very kind face. I'm, I'm visualizing this as I tell you the story. And, you know, I, I held the bag out, and he, he came over and said, is this for me? And I said, yes, it's for you. He took it and he did something that I didn't expect. He said, God bless you. I'm not going to cry. <laughs> God bless you. And I, I got tears. As I watched him walk away with this bag, he held it in his hands like it was, like I would do a bag of money. And he, he flipped it over and studied the contents as he walked back to his post. 
and his, he never took his eyes off that bag. I got home and I walked into our beautiful house where we have more than we need. And I was humbled. And I sat down and I cried, God, please use me again. You would think something as simple as dropping off a bag of goodies to a homeless person. I dropped it, I'm done. I'm not done. I don't know what's next. I don't know what I can do for him except pray. God knows his story, I don't. That could have been me. It could be me. It could be any of us. And I will continue to pray for him. I ask that you would pray for him and the homeless in our community as well. Um, as Pastor Rob said, look for opportunities to bless people. I'm not sure who was blessed more, him or me, but I'm so thankful for the blessing that I got out of a bag of goodies for a homeless man. What I love the most about that story is I drove around three times. Do you know what I'm saying? How easy is it to say, yeah, yeah, I probably should have, but I'm tired, I want to go home, and I've passed the light. No, I kept going around and around until I could give him my bag. That's awesome. That's what we're talking about. Okay? Knowing who we are is central to being effective in ministry. We are his treasured possession. That comes with a lot of responsibility. That means, yeah, you know what? I'm going to drive around three times because I'm supposed to give this guy this this blessing bag that our Compass Ministry put together, which we're going to do more of. And that, that really leads to the second statement that he makes about us in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. And I'll start hurrying up. I'm sorry. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, he says, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. We're priests of God, okay? So God makes a declaration that we're this kingdom of priests. What does that mean for us? In the Old Testament, Aaron and his sons serve as priests, and in Judaism, that that genealogy, the descendants of Aaron, still fill those roles. But when God makes this statement in verse 6 to Moses... He's not exclusively referring to the positions that Aaron and his sons are to fill. God is describing what Israel's life as a whole is to represent among the nations around them. So by keeping the covenant, the people of Israel, as priests, set themselves apart from everyone else. And they also mediate the presence and blessing of God to other nations. We'll see how Peter applies this to the church today in a few minutes. But to be sure, we are the priesthood of God's kingdom today with Christ as our high priest. And so just as the Old Testament Israel was to be the keeper of the covenant and the mediators of God's presence and blessing, so we too are to keep the new covenant that we have in Christ and and offer or mediate the presence and blessing of God to others by telling them about and leading them to Christ today by sharing the good news of the gospel. And we do that in all different kinds of ways. You see, when we give food to the hungry, when we share a blessing bag with the homeless, when we give clothes to the needy, when we provide shelter to the homeless, when we take care of widows and and orphans, when we, we take time to pray for one another, 
you know, when we ask someone how's it going and we really want to know the answer, we take time to listen. When we love people who aren't like us, even those who are different politically or religiously, when we love people genuinely, all of this, it sets us apart. When you take time to listen or offer encouragement or offer help or just love someone who's hurting, when you do that, you're mediating the presence of God that is within you. You're sharing the love of Christ that he's lavished on you. And I'll tell you what, people take notice of that because that's not the norm in our society. All of a sudden, we're set apart from the rest of our culture and people begin to take notice. When that way of living becomes the culture at this church, when that becomes normal for us, people won't have to hear a sermon or try to, try, uh, to come and listen to the worship to see if the music is their style because it won't matter. It won't matter one bit because people want to be a part of something genuine, something bigger than themselves, and something that is offering real, authentic love. And when they experience that, they'll overlook all of the things that may not suit their style or preference. They'll, they'll be okay with a boring sermon or, or a sound system that isn't perfect or sitting on green pews, which, which were free, I'd like to add. And the way that people will experience the genuine love and care and interest from this church is by the way that we look at them, the way that we talk to them, the way that we listen to them, and the way that we invite them to be a part of our family. The truth is, you're already doing all of this. And I just want to do it more. We have, we have very few people to date who have visited our church and then not come back. You know that most of our folks, you, who were looking for a church home have come and you've stayed. And, and the one reason that I keep hearing over and over and over again from people for why they love our little church is because of how friendly and caring and accepted our people are accepting that our people are and how accepted they feel when they come here. So in case I haven't told you lately, you guys are hitting a home run. Please don't stop. Don't get weary of doing well because you're really good at it. And believe it or not, I think we can even get better. It starts by making every person that walks through those doors feel like they've come home. And then taking a real interest in them, a real interest in them. We build relations, relationships from there. But it's also about this church being about something that is bigger than this church. Ultimately, of course, that's Jesus Christ. But how we express that has to move beyond Sunday services. How we express the love of Christ to the world must transcend what happens in this building on Sundays. Don't get me wrong. This should, this should never stop. Whether you know it or not, we all need this and we're commanded to do this. But our vision and our mission for this church must look beyond these walls. And I, and I see the foundation is in place. I asked God for our first year to bring me 100 people committed to change the world. And it's interesting to me that two weeks ago we had 104 people in our church for the first time. We have people that are members of a Christian motorcycle association that does phenomenal outreach on its own. We have people that are doing ministry out of their home and, and outreach ministries 
in unbelievable ways. We have people that may be purchasing a camp up the road soon with opportunities to minister. I mean, there's so much already in place in our church right now that we're just, we haven't tapped into. Okay? That's coming. You're going to hear more about this in the coming weeks. I'm just saying our vision as a church has to begin to broaden beyond these walls if we are to, if we are to thrive and make a difference. Okay? I could talk about that all day, and in the coming weeks we will, particularly in the new year. Uh, we're going to talk a lot more about this. But let's move on. Because there's even more to this priest thing than being set apart and being mediators of his presence and blessing. There are implications for us in how we are to live our lives in front of the rest of the world as priests of God. It ties in perfectly with being set apart. It's the last statement in our text that God makes about Israel, and it's our last point today. We are to be a holy nation. Again, Exodus 19, 5 and 6. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We're a holy nation. No pressure there, right? Just a little thing, just a minor detail. I, hey, I want you to be my people, my treasured possession, my priesthood. And oh, by the way, you need to be holy. You know, some mornings I can't put my jeans on without getting mad. Right? Frustrated. I'm not a morning person and I'm far from perfect. So I figure at least 50% of each week I've blown the whole be holy thing before breakfast. <laughs> How in the world am I supposed to be holy? Are you kidding me? I read this and it seems ridiculous. How am I supposed to be holy? Well, you know what part of the answer is? Repentance. A few weeks ago, it was a beautiful day out Saturday, and my wife and I told the kids, Riley and Coleman, my oldest sons, to, to wash the cars. And we're all doing stuff around the house. We're working. And Riley comes in at one point, and he asked me for the keys to the truck. And so I hand them to him, and I said, listen, pal, because if you know anything about my family, we all lose keys about once a week. Somebody loses the keys. I said, the keys are on the table. When you're done, I want the keys put on the table. You understand? Yep. Okay. And they go out and they wash the cars. And, and we're doing lawn and all kinds of stuff. And a while later, I said, Riley, I need to get in my truck. It's locked. Where are the keys? He said, I gave them back to you. I said, no, you didn't. And that's not what I told you to do. Why are they not on the table? I, I don't know, Dad. Go find my keys. And so... He's walking around, and he's, the garage is open, and he's looking for my keys everywhere, and he can't find them. And I'm getting increasingly irritated. And then, Coleman, go help your brother find the keys. And before too long, the entire family, minus Avery, who, who's doing her own thing, we're all looking for my keys. And I am getting increasingly angry. I'm starting to lose it. I can't believe you've lost my keys. You are washing the car. I need the truck. So I'm walking around and I'm starting to knock stuff around because I'm angry and I'm looking and nobody can find the keys. And I, now it gets to like full pitch. Dad is ticked off. And everybody and probably my neighbors know it at this point. And I walk out in the driveway and, and I've been barking at everybody and you know it's like everybody knows I'm not happy. And I shove my hands down in my pockets in frustration. And I get a handful of keys. <laughs> I literally out loud, I said, God, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> oh, no. 
I wanted those keys to be at the, anywhere else in the world but in my pocket at that moment. They could have been at the bottom of a lake. It would have been better. I literally stood there for like three or four solid minutes trying to figure out how I was going to apologize to my kid. And it's hard to apologize when you're wrong, especially to your kids. I don't know why. So finally, I sucked it up, and I walked over. I said, hey, Riley, I, man, I apologize. Will you forgive me? I thought, you gave me the keys back. They're in my pocket. And Court, he's like, cool. <laughs> Just... <laughs> I'm such a mess sometimes, you know. Without repentance, there can be no holiness. And of course, we think about repentance when we first accept Christ and become born again. And then if we do something really wrong, like something big, of course, there needs to be repentance. But you know what? Repentance for the Christian must become a part of our lifestyle. If we're to be holy, this, this is God's design for us. What Paul goes on to say in the Second Corinthians passage we just read, right after declaring that we're temples of the living God, in chapter 6, Paul says in chapter 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The idea that we can repent once at the time of salvation and never repent again and remain in right standing with God, holy and blameless, is scripturally untenable. It ain't going to happen. 1 John 1, 5 through 10 says, This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This letter was written to Christians. Clearly we're instructed to repent for our sins as often as we sin. For me, well, just say I make it a point every day. When I pray to take time and ask the Father to reveal to me anything that I may need to repent for. And then I'm sure to repent. I ask forgiveness and an attempt to amend my behavior. That's repentance. Or attitude or thoughts or disposition toward whomever or whatever I need to. In order to have a pure heart before God. Repentance has become a part of my daily life. I believe that's God's design for us. And if repentance isn't a regular part of your life, I challenge you. Take a few minutes for the next couple of weeks. Every day when you pray. During your devotional time. Or, or driving down the road. Or in the shower. Or wherever you pray. And just ask God. Is there anything that I need to ask forgiveness for? I found that for me. It's like peeling back layers of an onion. The more I seek forgiveness. The deeper I go with God. The more intimate my prayer time becomes. The more sensitive I become to sin. In short repentance brings us closer to God. By restoring our relationship with him. A relationship that might be in disrepair because of sin and we don't even realize it, okay? And then the other part of, of holiness isn't so much what we don't do, it's what we do. It's dedication to God. Interestingly, as we've been looking at chapter 19 of Exodus today, where God describes his people as a holy nation, what comes right after that? The Ten Commandments. Chapter 20. When read casually, the Ten Commandments appear to be sort of a simple list of do's and don'ts. But when understood fully, the Ten Commandments are a prescription for a life dedicated fully to God. 
and thus a requirement for our holiness. So quickly as we, as we wrap up, I'm going to read through these. Okay, the first 21 verses of Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, God commands exclusive loyalty here. The, the Hebrew phrase, before me, interestingly enough, means in my presence. So God's staying here, that he's not going to tolerate the worship of, of other gods, not only in place of him, but in addition to him. So pluralism, which is becoming increasingly popular in our postmodern culture, the idea that all roads lead to heaven and we can participate in a multiplicity of religions and it, it's still okay with God, we're going to all get there, that goes right out the window with the first commandment. Okay? Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, This commandment, is not only a direct affront to the Egyptian pagan religions that the Israelites just came out from under because the Egyptians worshipped images of animals and other aspects of nature and God defeated them with the plagues. We talked about that. But he's also saying, don't fashion some kind of image to try and contain me because I cannot be contained. I have no physical form. And when you carve an image, you're trying to relegate the omnipotence and omnipresence of God into a fixed location. And that's impossible. Okay? God cannot be contained. Verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The Lord revealed his name to Moses, and he repeatedly reveals his name to Israel throughout their history. And so he's warning his chosen people here to be careful not to use his name inappropriately or even casually. Because we have no right or authority to use his name in a way that would appear to disconnect his name from his true person, his true power, or his true presence. Okay? Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, every aspect of living a holy life mimics the person and purpose of God. And so he commands his people to work six days and then rest because that's exactly what God did. And, and he created the heavens and, and earth. He, he took a day off, right? He rested from his work. He's saying here, do what I do. Imitate me and therefore show the world that you belong to me, my treasured possession. Verse 12, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You've heard it said this is the one commandment with a promise attached to it. That's true. If you show honor, deference to your parents, You'll not only have a long life, but a blessed life. And he says that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Okay, that's a blessed life filled with God's presence and favor and promise. Riley and Coleman. Just making sure you got that point. The three next commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. These are all meant to set minimum standards for justice within the nation of Israel. And they also 
reinforce the concept that we're to love our neighbors and, and treat them with respect and goodwill. It's all a part of living a holy life. 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Okay, perverting justice as bearing false witness would be is utter disregard for God's character. And again, holiness is living a life where our character mimics God's character. Verse 17, you shall not cover your, covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not cover your, covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant. His, sorry, I messed that up. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover, covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Okay, the previous four commandments. Focus on, on actions, deeds committed, words spoken. This commandment focuses on the intent of our heart. Coveting or desiring what someone else has will govern your relationship with them as opposed to letting love govern your relationships. You see the difference? All right, and then verses 18 through 21 really sum up the proper relationship between a healthy fear or respect for God and abstaining from sin, or in other words, living this holy life. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. You know, verse 21 is a powerful image to me of the combination of reverent, awestruck wonder of the Almighty God by the Hebrew people. It says the people stood far off. And yet the loving, compassionate, and approachable God that we have, as it says, Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. He's to be revered and respected, feared and honored. And yet he's approachable, and kind, and compassionate, and personal. What an absolutely awesome God that we serve. So who are we? What's our identity in Christ? We're his treasured possession. We're his priesthood. And we are to be holy as he is holy. And, and just in case you still have any doubts that this text in Exodus applies to us? 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Peter confirms everything that God says in Exodus about us, everything that Paul says about us in 2 Corinthians. Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you, you, are God's people. See, Peter's repeating to the Gentiles and the Jews, to all believers, exactly what God was saying to the Israelites in Exodus 19. God said, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Peter says, you're a chosen race. God said, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Peter says, you are a royal priesthood. God said, you're a holy nation. And Peter repeats that. You are a holy nation. Our identity has to be completely wrapped up in one thing. And one thing only, Jesus Christ. Not in our career, not in our relationships, not in our possessions. In Christ alone rests our identity. Leon Crump said, if your identity is wrapped up in what you do, 
then your identity is always subject to crisis. It is always subject to failure. Our identity is found in Christ alone. And that is really, really good news. Because that means that we have greatness in our spiritual DNA. Greatness in our spiritual DNA. You know what? Don't waste it. Don't squander it. Don't undervalue it. Don't ignore it. Don't run from it. And don't pretend it isn't you. If you're a believer, a follower of Christ, it is you. Accept that. Believe that you are who God says you are. And live like the holy chosen priesthood that you are. That's his plan for your life. Let's pray. Jeannie, would you come?